Thank you, Simon, for that prayer, especially the prayer that the sermon will be good. I hope your prayer will be answered. Um, stay. All right. Um, Roy sent his greetings. He's on his way back from Yakandanda. Um, he was preaching there this morning, so he went up yesterday. And if you're wondering where that is, um, I have discovered through Google Maps um, that it's four hours northeast is near um, Albury, which, um, and I know that several of you come from that place. And so he was, um, he went up, and I know he was really hoping to be able to catch some snow tomorrow, but um, the weather was not cooperating. So hence he's like, let's try to make this work. <laughs> and so if you uh, are interested in going skiing, um, I think he was saying that. Um, Basically, we'll just keep an eye out for the weather, and if a day comes when there's a dump of snow on, on Buller or uh, some other slope, that if you're interested, he'll just kind of have you in a group and then just be like, let's go, <laughs> and see who can who can uh, make it. And uh, So yeah, so if you're interested in being a part of that desperate list of people who are hoping to go sometime before the season closes, um, let Roy know, and he'll, he'll um, make a little group. Two weeks ago, so I missed you all last week. Um, for those of you who heard what happened, I was supposed to preach, and then I developed um, preorbital cellulitis, which is basically an infection of my eyelid area in my deep tissue. How it got there, who knows? Maybe my contact lens. Anyway, so Thursday, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, it was, it was starting to be, get a bit red, and I thought, oh, I just die or something. Like I was like, whatever. And then, like, by Friday, like, my entire uh, left eye was, like, red and swollen, and it was not pretty. But I was being very stubborn, and I was like, it'll be fine. I'll preach. All good. And then by Friday night, Roy was like, you know, it's really okay. Like, I will preach. Just let me know so that I have time to prepare it. And I was like, I'll be fine. And then, I, and then at, like, 10 p.m. Friday, I was like, I don't feel good. <laughs> he was like, all right. So he was very gracious and... Um, and uh, it took care, t- took over the preaching and, and the caring of church last Sabbath, which I appreciated. Um, and uh, I was able to get antibiotics, which are wonderful. And um, I am all better now um, from that. But um, anyway, so because of that, um, last week was was uh, the second part, and, and I'm preaching it now. The second part of the series I've begun. And so two weeks ago, I started by sharing why you matter. Um, and we talked about how each one of you is unique and created by God to do good. Each one of us has unique personality, interests, abilities, and opportunities that contribute, that can contribute to the well-being of others. And I shared how our worth is not based on our accomplishments or our failures, but on the fact that we are children of God. And that's something that I think it takes a lifetime to really embrace and accept because all our lives we're told that um, our worth is dependent on our accomplishments and our failures, um, etc. So I'm very personally grateful for the fact that our worth is based purely and solely on the fact that we are children of God. And the security of our identity and our worth in God then allows us to do good, allows us to be better, allows us to do the right thing instead of giving up. And so today is part two of the series called Why They Matter. So we did Why You Matter, we're doing Why They Matter, 
And then um, next week I'm away because um, I'm going to Gippsland for a wedding. And so um, Roy will be preaching. And the weekend after that will be Why God Matters. Um, and then I'm away on long service leave for a few weeks. And eventually when I come back, I will finish the series with Why We Matter. <laughs> um, so I apologize that it's a bit disjointed. But why do they matter is today. If each of us has intrinsic worth and if each of us was created in the image of God, then not only do you matter, but they matter. And the question is, who are they? Who are they? During Jesus' time in the first century Israel, they were tax collectors. The Roman authorities um, who had colonized Israel hired the local people to collect taxes from their neighbors. And so these tax collectors were seen as traitors of the people because they're working for the enemy. And they were considered the enemy because not only did the Roman authorities tax the people, they mistreated the people. The Roman soldiers um, often abused the people. And so it wasn't just that, oh, we have to pay money. It was, we have to pay money to people who have taken so much from us. And these tax collectors were also seen as thieves because they often extorted their neighbors to keep a little bit extra for themselves. So viewed as treacherous, opportunistic vultures, tax collectors were not welcome in any polite society and definitely not in the religious circles. No one wanted anything to do with them, right? If you, they wanted to insult you in the playground, they would call you a tax collector, right? Then along comes Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 9, Andrew, if I can have priority, thank you. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a young, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees were the ruling class in Israel. And they were also the religious leaders. And they saw Jesus sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they were confounded. Because after all, Jesus is starting out his ministry. He's, He's building a rabbinical school. He's someone who is gathering disciples, trying to start a new movement. And why in the world would he choose them? over the deserving, the righteous, the pure. And it made them downright angry. And if Jesus was someone that they could ignore, a rebel rouser, a flash in the pan, you know, just a nobody, it's one thing. But Jesus was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was someone that they couldn't ignore and they couldn't deny that he had spiritual authority, but it made them so upset And they couldn't understand his choice of companions. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. And not only that, but they really couldn't understand why he would call some of those sinners to be 
his disciples. Zealots with militant ideology. Fishermen with anger issues. Why in the world does Jesus call them? Didn't he know who they were? Didn't he know what they had done? He knew. And yet, he chose them. And he ate with them. And he ministered to them. And I wonder, who would Jesus eat with today if he were here? Who would be at his table? Who matters to him that we might be outraged by? Who are the people that we condemn and label as sinners today? How would we feel if we saw Jesus calling them to be the future church leaders? And if you're feeling uncomfortable, you're listening really well. The Pharisees were absolutely challenged by Jesus' charge to go and learn what this means I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is challenging for us because we feel righteous. We do the right things. We come to church. We pay tithe. We, we do those things that we pray. We read our Bibles. And that's a lot easier to do than to befriend someone who has questionable ethics, to associate with people who say the wrong things and have the wrong ideologies, people we have written off as a lost cause or people that we would be absolutely embarrassed by if they, like, tagged us on Facebook, you know? It's for all to see that we know them. Could they be the ones at Jesus' table today? Jesus expanded his definition of who he included and who he wanted us to include in a story that he told to an expert of the law who comes to test him. Found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and onward. This expert of the law comes and tests Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, he wants to know who are the they in the they matter. And so Jesus tells a story, a story that is is probably well known to you, a story of uh, a man, a Jewish man, who on his way down from Jericho to Jerusalem gets attacked by robbers, beaten, and left for dead. And after a while, someone comes along, a priest, and a Levi. Levi, well, someone who... Both individuals who who worked for the temple, religious men, religious leaders. And the Bible says, and Jesus tells a story, that not only did they not stop to help, they passed on the other side. They didn't even want to go near. They didn't want to be contaminated. They didn't want to become ceremoniously unclean. They didn't even go to check if he was still alive. They passed by on the other side of the road. 
Maybe their tasks waiting for them in Jerusalem were too important for them to stop. Maybe they thought, well, it's not my problem. I'm not the one who hurt him. Then a Samaritan man came by. Now, Jews and Samaritans have a bitter history. And most Jews look down on Samaritans. You know, in the playground, if you wanted to insult someone, you call them a tax collector or a Samaritan. But a Samaritan man comes by. And it reads in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied reluctantly, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What parable would Jesus tell us today to challenge us? It might go something like this. An aboriginal man was robbed of his land, beaten and left for dead by a European colonizer. A Christian missionary walked by and took his children. A Christian politician walked by and took his wages. Then an atheist wearing a pride shirt walked by and saw the aboriginal man wounded and lying on the road and had compassion on him. He went to him and listened to the man's pain and loss. He helped minister to the man's needs. Then he journeyed with him to take him to a place where he could recover. He was even willing to pay from his own pocket as much as it took to help this man live. Even though he wasn't the one who had hurt this man, he considered it his responsibility to ensure that this man was cared for. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor? to the aboriginal man. And if this cuts too close, then I want you to imagine this scene in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is talking to the disciples. They had asked him for the signs of the end, and he had asked, uh, the disciples had asked Jesus, tell us, tell us what are the signs that you're going to be coming soon. And you know, as Seventh-day Adventists, we love the signs. But you know, there's a sign that Jesus mentioned about you know, yes, there's earthquakes, yes, there's natural disasters, yes, and this and that, and there's, yes, there's deception and, and people not caring about God, and all of that. But Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, thanks, Brian, people just will be ap- apathetic to the suffering of others. No, thank you. People will, the love of many will grow cold. People will become apathetic to the needs of others. And then he tells this other parable. He says, when the Son of Man comes, uh, can I get back to this slide? Thank you. There you go. In Matthew 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And who do they represent? Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance and the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty 
and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And notice the answer of the righteous, the sheep. They don't say, oh, Jesus, no worries. Thank you for, you know, helping me. No, no, they say, what are you talking about? They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Um, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And this group, too, will be shocked, because they will say, Well, Lord, and clearly there's a relationship here. These are not the people who are not followers of God. These are followers of God who are saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? Oh, if we, we, we did all, we surely would have helped you if we had known that you needed those things. And God will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. You see, the ones on the left, the goats, they did a lot of good. But to those they liked and deemed worthy. But not for the ones they decided didn't matter. I heard someone say once, you can pretend to care, but you can't pretend to show up. The ones on the left didn't show up. The ones on the right, they fed the hungry, they ministered to the thirsty. They befriended the lonely. They showed up. And Jesus says, whatever you did for that one person, you did it for me. Jesus identifies with the ones that society has forgotten about. They matter to him so much that he holds us accountable for our apathy. And if you're feeling uncomfortable... There's more. Jesus expands his definition of they, not only for the, for the ones who are sinners, for the ones that are outside our, you know, ethical righteousness and the ones who we, we deem as unworthy in that sense. And not only does he expand the definition to include, include those who are in need, those who are suffering, those who we forget about, those, you know, in our preoccupation with our own lives. Not only does he include them, but he now expands the they to something that is really hard. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 30. But to you who are listening, and you're all listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray to those who mistreat you. 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full, right? 
Even the banks expect to get repaid. They're not giving us, lending us loans out of the goodness of their hearts, right? Jesus says, but love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. See, doing good to those who are good to us, I mean, that can be hard sometimes, right? You think about all the people you love, and all the times it's hard to treat them well. And being kind to those who are grateful, that's hard too, right? Going out of your way to do things for people. But, you know, it makes you feel good afterwards that you've helped them. But being kind to someone who hurts you, doing good for ungrateful people, sacrificing your own rights and benefits so that the needs of evil people can be met, praying for God to forgive people who hurt you, how is that even possible? Last week, I read the memoir of Frida Umuhuza. For those of you in my book club, spoiler alert. Uh, Braun actually chose this book, so thanks, Braun. It was a very difficult book to read because she tells the experience of living through the Rwanda genocide. Horrific details of incredible human cruelty and violence. And I expected this. What I didn't expect, and what was really hard also, was to read the mention of Seventh-day Adventist leaders and members and churches that she specifically mentions who participated in and even led the massacre of over 500,000 members of the Tutsi minority ethnic group. Now, the reason why it was so hard was, you know, I went into this book knowing it was about the genocide, knowing that there were people who did this, but when you, you just don't expect those perpetrators to be part of your group because it's just too close to home. You just don't expect your own people to be capable of such atrocities. Somehow we always think that we're exempt from any evil. We would never do that. We could never. So when someone else does something awful, we're so quick to judge and we're so slow to forgive because all of a sudden, they are the other. Right? All of a sudden, I'm nothing like them. And we deny our own capacity for evil. We don't even recognize our own pride and our bias, which are the seed for the injustice and the suffering in the world today. We don't even realize the hurts that we are causing others around us because we are just that blind and deaf. This week, I came to realize some things about myself that were very difficult. And without going into it, those realizations about the implications of my actions and my thoughts and my words and my pride and my blindness and my bitterness and my shame, it just broke me.
And the only reason I'm able to stand here today and preach at all is because even though I'm broken by my own uh, my own evil, my own um, failures and faults and flaws, the reason why I'm able to preach anyway, sorry, thank Kim for having these <laughs> on standby, um, is because I understand something that I hope you too can accept, which is that we are all in need of mercy. When Jesus was on the cross and people were physically hurting him and mocking him and throwing insults at him, Jesus turned and said a prayer that wasn't meant just for them but for all of us. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he was talking about all of us because each one of us are blind and deaf to what it is we're doing. To God, to each other, to ourselves. And sometimes we know it and can't help it. And sometimes we genuinely don't know it and realize it later. And sometimes we don't realize it at all. And while we are still guilty, God says, Father, forgive her. Forgive him. Because he understands us. He understands the pain that we have been through. And how sometimes that pain makes us so angry and so ashamed and so vulnerable that we just lock it deep inside. That we throw away the key and we just strive and we strive to expect more from ourselves and others. And when they fail or when we fail to meet our own imposed standards, we harden our hearts and we double down and we build another wall until we cannot hear or see or feel God or those around us. And so we hurt Others without even realizing it. Like the Pharisees. I don't think they woke up and said, today I'm going to exclude the sick. I don't think they woke up one day and said, well today I'm going to insult the lepers. I don't think they woke up one day and said, well today I'm not going to associate with the prostitutes. I think it was inheritance of culture. I think it was the daily living, the daily denying, the daily blindness to their own pride in their hearts. But Jesus died for them too. And for us too. And if we want to extend mercy and compassion towards others, First, we have to acknowledge our own need for mercy. A few years ago, I preached about Brian Stevenson, a human rights lawyer in the U.S. He works tirelessly to achieve fair sentences and outcomes for those convicted for crimes that, I, that they either did not commit or did commit but were given really harsh sentences. There's a movie uh, based on his story as well. Sam actually recommended this book to me, so thank you, Sam. 
it's, this book has become one of my favorite books, and I highly recommend everyone to read it. He shares the heartbreaking and the inspiring stories of children, men and women, who were executed or unfairly treated and abused in the prison systems in America. And he spends time with them, and he gets to know them. Sometimes he's able to help them, but most, more oftentimes than he would like, he can't. Despite all his best efforts, he can't change their outcome. And at one point, he's so deeply discouraged and just tired and so just hopeless by the broken system, by broken humanity, that he just wants to quit. He just gets to a point where he's like, how can people do this, right? How, how, can, how can this be, right? The reality of the world is just so messed up that he just thinks to himself, I just can't do this anymore. The little good that he does feels like a drop in the bucket, and he just, he just wants to give up. Then he realizes something, and it's a really long quote, but I want to read it to you, so bear with me. He says, my years of struggling against inequality and abusive power, poverty, oppression, and injustice had finally revealed something to me about myself. Being close to suffering, death, executions, and cruel punishments didn't just illuminate the brokenness of others. In a moment of anguish and heartbreak, it also exposed my own brokenness. You can't effectively fight abusive power, poverty, inequality, illness, oppression, or injustice and not be broken by it. We are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is non-equivalent. Right? We get that. Some of us are more, have been through more than others. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort meaning and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. He says, we have a choice. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing. Or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity. I frequently had difficult conversations with clients who were struggling and despairing over their situations, over the things they had done or had been done to them and had led them to painful moments. Whenever things got really bad and they were questioning the value of their lives, I would remind them that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I told them that if someone tells a lie, that person is not just a liar. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, you are not just a thief. Even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. I told myself that evening that what I had been telling my clients for years, I am more than broken. In fact, there is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things that you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. Why do they matter? Because they're just like us.
worthy of love and created to do good. Why do they matter? Because they're just like us, broken and hurt by the world that we live in. Why do they matter? Because they need mercy just as we do. We are no better than or worse than they are. They are no better than or worse than we are. And when we understand this collective need for grace, that's when the healing can begin. Because they matter and because we matter. The stranger on the street corner, the coworker with a different viewpoint, the friend who hurt us. In all of those moments, Jesus' call to mercy becomes deeply relevant. And when we let down our barriers and embrace those that we didn't let in before, and we embody the message that Jesus loves everyone, we echo his message that everyone has inherent value and everyone deserves to be treated with mercy. And it's my prayer today that as we experience God's mercy for ourselves, as we are willing to be vulnerable and confess our brokenness before God, that that mercy, like an ocean, would just fill our hearts and our lives with the true understanding of then other people's worth, other people's value, and their needs, and how we can actually extend that mercy and grace to them. And in doing so, that we will find healing and peace for ourselves, our community, and our world. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess before you, and I confess before you, that we like to think of ourselves as worthy, but the reality is you make us worthy. And the truth is that we have often been broken or have broken, have been hurt and have hurt others. Father, not only do we ask for forgiveness because you give it to us so freely, but we also ask for strength and courage to then go and extend that mercy to others, to be willing to let you have the hurt in our hearts and to let us heal and that allow you to heal us so that we can be agents of healing for others. Father, I just want to pray for those who are struggling at the moment, who perhaps are also really um, suffering in, in, the, in the depths of what it means to experience mercy and to give it. And I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would comfort them and strengthen them and enable them to understand just how much you love them, Lord, and how you call us in this very broken world to be heralders of hope. And we thank you that you give us this privilege. In Jesus' name we pray.